Are you interested in money, trends and behaviours? Welcome to Fin Talking, hosted by Jemima Joseph, Cassandra Crow, and Erica Hall. Just a quick reminder that this podcast provides general information only. It is not intended to provide financial, legal or tax advice. If you need advice, please consult a professional. Now let's get Fin Talking. Something that we've been talking about for a while is financial literacy and how that is a real issue and could be the root cause for the magnitude of the economic crisis that we're facing right now and globally. What do you mean by that, Jemima? Like, why do you think it's the root cause? According to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, they define financial literacy as a combination of awareness, knowledge, skills, attitudes and behaviours necessary to make sound financial decisions and ultimately achieve financial well-being. So I think kind of the root cause to the magnitude of this global economic crisis that we're facing probably stems to the fact that there is a financial literacy crisis that is global as well, is that people weren't financially ready Agree. pre-COVID for all of this. Yeah, I think I agree too. Like there's definitely been some indications that a lot of people don't have money on hand to deal with an emergency mm-hmm. and I guess are ill-prepared for uncertainty like the COVID-19. So, you know, a complete economic shutdown. People have been furloughed or, or lost their jobs. Obviously here in Australia, the government stepped in and um, tried to support fiscally through JobKeeper and JobSeeker. But if they hadn't have done that, it could have been even worse. And I think that it is a travesty that people don't have enough money on hand to survive, you know, a couple of weeks if there is some kind of financial um, disruption. Regardless of a financial disruption, there's that concept of people being financially squeezed. So there's this group in the UK called Financial Capability Lab. So they're our kind of people in the sense that they uh, look at the issue of like financial literacy, financial capabilities, um, specifically in the UK. And they found that there's a whole group of people being classified as financially squeezed, which means that they have a significantly low amount of average savings for their household. So for us, that would translate to like $1,000 per household and also miss out on free financial support. So their thinking is that is obviously the problem, but the solution is really around education, around trying to get people to first know what to do around savings, how to look at their debt and how to access help. But beyond that is actually turning that into action. And I think that's a really key point, right? Um, Certainly I know what to do financially and we all do, like the three of us, because we've made finance our career and our life. But it's actually then implementing that knowledge into an actionable outcome. And that's half the battle, right? So it's like dieting. You know what you've got to do. You've got to eat less um, and move more. But it's not that hard. Anyone that can count can be financially literate because at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, how much you're earning and then how much you're spending. And so you have people that earn a lot of money that are actually doing really poorly because they're spending too much. So there's, it's not just what you earn, but it's actually what you spend and it's managing those cash flows is such a critical part to being financially literate. So I think the positive is 
it shouldn't be that hard to get people up the curve to be financially literate and to manage their um, their personal finances better. And I think that it's incumbent on us in the financial services industry to sort of help people and to, I guess, demystify. It's not that hard. Totally agree. I think it's not that hard, but I also wonder if you think about where we're coming from. I mean, you've hit on some really interesting things, Erica. I think uh, the research I've read is that only 30% of Americans and most people in developed countries are financially literate. And that was assessed through three really clever but simple questions. You know, for example, if I had $100 today uh, and my interest rate was 2% and I invested that over five years, would I have more or less than $102? And of course, the benefit of compound interest is that you would have more than $102, which is great. But a number of people, 70% of people can't answer that question uh, today in the developed world. And then the second question was very similar, but including inflation. Uh, So, you know, the impact of inflation uh, compounding your, your money is actually going backward because the real purchasing power of that goes backward. And then the third question was the most simple of all, where it looked at you know, are you safer investing in one stock or investing in a managed fund? And of course, we all know the answer Mm. is a managed fund because you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. You could invest in one company, it could be amazing, but the reality is also, you know, has a higher potential of blowing up. So really just hitting on diversification. So those three simple questions looking at compound interest, inflation, and then also the impact of diversification, 70% of people in developed countries cannot answer. Um, so I think to your point, we've got Crazy. a huge opportunity. Yeah, but that is the current state of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, Erica, another thing you mentioned that that I really agree with, you know, you can earn a lot of money. Uh, the same research team that did this study with those three questions also looked at footballers in the US and found that despite the huge earnings that they have, particularly early on in their careers, more than 15% of them went broke by the time they retired. And you've got to ask yourself why that is, because they're earning more money than, you know, we might earn in our lifetime. They're Mm -hmm. earning it super quick. They could invest it and they could earn the benefit of compound interest over a long period of time. But unfortunately, you know, even our football stars are going broke. So yeah, it's a huge pandemic. I, I totally agree. Oh, definitely. And to that point about footballers, I mean, there's that HBO show that uh, features The Rock, which I'm a big fan of, um, that kind of like depicts that in a very Hollywood style way of, you know, the fact that these um, footballers do grow from very humble beginnings to mass amount of wealth. And then when, like you said, it comes to the point of retirement, they haven't been able to really use that money effectively. And largely that does come down to a lack of financial literacy or even accessing the right advice when you need it. Yeah. And having a plan. Yes. You know, as well, like what is it you're trying to achieve? And if you don't have a plan, you're just going to, it's really easy to fritter it all away, right? Totally. I think there's such a huge opportunity though for advice in Australia today that could really, you know, impact on so many people's lives. And and then even breaking it down to Australian terms and looking at the impact on women, um, something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think we all on this call know that 40% of single women in Australia today retire in poverty, technically in poverty. It's the fastest growing group of homeless. Mm. And then another statistic that really shocked me that I only learnt recently, women between 65 and 69, 45% currently have zero superannuation. 
And you think it's probably to do with their circumstances, right? They're the ones that are caregiving. They're the ones that take the career breaks to look after the children. And it it comes at a cost and um, it's quite a severe financial cost. And the other Mm. thing, actually, when you were talking through that um, survey, that international survey, there is a survey that's done in Australia, which is the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia survey. It's a big one. Mouthful. It's a massive (laughs) mouthful, which is shortened to HILDA, and it's a Melbourne University study, and it's around 17,500 people or 9,500 households. And similar thing, ask some basic um, questions around, you know, financial questions that you talk to, Cassie, in terms of interest calculations, diversification, inflation, etc., and less than um, half of, um, or sorry, around half of the the male participants could answer the questions. But then that means fifty percent couldn't answer basic financial questions. But what's really disturbing is only thirty five percent of women could answer the questions correctly. So not only are women already at a disadvantage from a financial literacy perspective, they're then at a disadvantage because they tend to not earn as much and they're at a disadvantage because they tend to take career breaks. And so the odds are really, really stacked against women in particular. Definitely. I mean, I read that survey too and I liked the bit that they had where they then looked at is there a correlation between financial literacy and then financial attitudes and behaviours and then obviously more important financial outcomes. And I think what they found was that the um, people's willingness to take on financial risk is the lowest when they have the least financial within the um, least financially literate group and the highest when they're the most literate Um which obviously is intuitive, but I think what was also Mm. interesting was savings and spending horizons tend to increase as you became more financial literate, Um, which is pretty interesting when you think about the fact that one of our greatest assets um, over our lifetime is superannuation, Um, and that has the longest (laughs) time frame that we could possibly Mm -hmm. manage in because it's over our time period. So, if that understanding of spending and time horizon is so low as a result of the lack of financial literacy, you know, it does um, shed some light on why households and individuals do struggle with their complete financial future. I, I think it's also just a lack of engagement with superannuation as well as financial literacy. I think it seems so far away to your point, Jemima, the investment you know, Horizon, we don't think of ourselves as getting old. Of course we will. It's not something we want to think about particularly. I think it bodes for a lack of engagement with actually the mental accounting that that superannuation is money for your future that you should be checking on, not every day, of course, but maybe once a year, just making sure your asset allocation is okay. I think it is that that lack of uh, awareness and engagement as well. And I heard that through the pandemic uh, with the financial hardship for COVID, I think the majority of people that drew down on their super are actually women as well. So it's just making that uh, scenario that was already quite devastating even more difficult in terms of thinking about their retirement and future outcomes. And actually, uh, the other thing that I've um, heard as well, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is that because women tend to earn less, they've got... um, less appetite to take on risk because um, it's going to be harder for them to make that uh, a loss back up. So if you think about it, the more you earn, you can take on a a bit more risk because you know you're earning more and so you can make that risk, that loss up more quickly. 
for women, it's even harder because they're not earning as much. So if they lose it, it's going to take them longer to um, get them back to where they started, if that makes sense. I'm not articulating this particularly well, but I think that that's another component of it, right? That the, the risk appetite is not there because the income is not there. So it's this perpetual mm. circle of disadvantage, mm. which is tragic. Because they haven't had the advice or the education or the engagement to really yeah. overcome that. I think that that's totally spot on. The other thing that, um, I mean, the positive of this is it isn't going to, it's not really necessarily that hard to improve your circumstances. And one of the things that um, came out in some of the studies is that there's actually two behaviours that will make a big difference to your outcomes. One is actively saving, um, so obviously not spending everything that you earn and putting some aside. Um, and the other one was actually just not borrowing for your day-to-day expenses. Mm. So if you can actually save and and live within your means, you're, you're going to be fine. Like it's as simple as that. Definitely. People, I'm just astounded, even friends I know who have these extreme mortgages, you know, I think, and I, I just feel so risk averse in comparison. I just think there's something to be said for living within your means and reducing the stress in your life. You'll definitely see much better outcomes. And I guess the counter to that is, you know, if you borrow more, you can potentially invest more. But I think the current state of play would indicate that there's a lack of living within your means. And I think that's reflected through the number of interest only mortgages that you see in Australia as well. Yeah hit on a really important um, point about like risk aversion. And I mean, all, I think all three of us are pretty conservative, but our conservative views are probably informed by the fact that we're well-informed about finance, about, you know, investment management, about a lot of these concepts. And it hasn't just stemmed from I worked out the other day that between the three of us, we have nine <laughs> finance degrees. So obviously we love this stuff. Um, I know, which is, <laughs> which is insane. That's crazy, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it kind of does stem through a little bit earlier in our lives with maybe, you know, as we were growing up, you know, our interaction with finance could have started long before we took it or what was a driving force behind why we entered into the financial industry to start with. So our attitudes towards money and our desire to learn has, you know, contributed to our level of literacy. But why, like the issue that financial literacy is, I guess, another form of a pandemic, that also kind of stems to the fact that like finance is not a topic that is covered in school. Uh, exactly. And it absolutely should be. I think uh, financial literacy should be uh, a program that is core to at least all high schools, potentially colleges as well. Um, and I do have a teacher friend, Liz Green, who's actually been implementing that over the last few years. And I was fortunate to present at that on superannuation last year, making the case that super is, you know, these young girls' superpower for the future to avoid, you know, these devastating outcomes that we're talking mm, about now. I like that. Um, and that, you know, it should be core. And I learned something really uh, recently too that I, I thought was quite interesting. I'd love your view on. I did economics at university and um, the RBA recently did a study that showed no one's really doing economics anymore, which I, I didn't realise it was a dinosaur degree. <laughs> and uh, instead what people are taking on is STEM, so science, technology, engineering and maths, which is great because obviously that taps into a lot of what we need in terms of future skills. 
But I think the difference between economics for me anyway is economics has such a focus on society and welfare at its core. That's really what economics is about. Whereas maths is about understanding compound interest, which is key, but you probably won't learn about inflation when you study maths. So I think there's a big disconnect with this trend away from economics. And I think in schools, it's not even necessarily offered something like half of the schools don't offer economics anymore. And I felt uh, devastated by that personally, because I I think it's such a wonderful way to think about the world from a society perspective. But I wondered what your view is, if that comes as a surprise to you, if you knew that it was an old school, outdated degree, or if it was just me that didn't know that. Yeah, I did actually read something on that too. And um, and it did link to the fact that we're losing that uh, knowledge of finance by not having the same demand for economics at school. So um, it's one of those subjects that is not widely offered anymore. Mm. Whereas you know, when I was at school, it was almost mandatory, I think. And clearly, you know, I, I majored in economics in my degree. And so, yes, I agree with you. I think you learn a lot of fundamental principles about you know, finance, as well as, um, as you were sort of saying, you know, how economies and societies work together and where, where sort of government can step in when yep. capitalism doesn't work. And it, it just gets you thinking more broadly about definitely you know, money, really. Um, and so it is a bit disappointing to hear that it's not in demand. Like, it'd be nice yeah. to be a, a part of a core curriculum because I think it's so important. Essentially, it's a life skill, right? I mean, when you go from... yeah finishing high school to whatever path that may be, you still need to know about how to save. You need to know about loans. That's just a life skill. So it's it's like we're kind of disadvantaging ourselves and future generations by not getting a basic understanding and obviously building upon that over time around finance and really normalizing finance, financial concepts in such a innate way that people and then as a result societies can just function so much better and be prepared for stuff like this that happens in the world. And I think when you think about economics being about societal welfare and policy making, it's potentially a challenging situation to think that the economists that we'll be producing are going to be from not necessarily male being an issue at all, but just from a more privileged background. We've got that lack of diversity, I guess, coming through the economic stream. I think it is more diverse when you look at streams like STEM, of course. But I thought, just again, that's quite an interesting observation, putting that in context of the poor retirement outcomes we see for women in Australia today, That to think that future economists might be all from a very similar uh, group of society is, I was just shocked, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, that is quite shocking. I mean, then there's so many points of research that the lack of diversity of thought and cognitive diversity does lead to suboptimal outcomes over time. The other thing I think, you know, then just sort of leading back into um, that we're not being educated on economics and, and finance is that it is a really difficult situation in terms of, well, how do we get that education? Because I think, I mean, Warren Buffett, God, I love Warren Buffett and he's got <laughs> so many fantastic quotes, but one of his quotes is the best investment you can make is in yourself. And so, you know, to get educated and to get um, knowledge so that you can make good decisions. And we've talked about this, that, you know, finance intersects 
every aspect of our lives. You know, you're going to go out there, you're going to negotiate you know, when, when you get a job, you know, you're going to buy a house, you're going to have to negotiate for that, you're going to have to get a loan. What sort of loan are you going to get? Are you going to fix it? Are you going to, is it going to be variable? Is it going to be interest only? Which lender are you going to go with? Um, you know, how long are you going to take that loan out for? All of this has a financial impact. Totally. So to actually understand finance and spend some time on it, invest in, in it, I would sort of be um, seriously suggesting people do that <laughs> because I think it, it, it will make a difference. You will get that um, investment back in spades. And I think that um, understanding even in, in terms of you know, we're talking about market timing before, Jemima. I was just saying one of the things I'm finding people asking me a lot at the moment is, oh, should I be investing now because it's been a bit of a volatile time and um, I just want to wait till it feels more comfortable. I want to wait for a better opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really dangerous situation, but I'm guilty of this myself. So I'm someone that's been in the finance industry for a long period of time. And look, I'm financially literate and I'm not sort of saying I'm the the most successful investor there's ever been. Uh, I know my limitations though. And I, you know, I definitely don't spend everything that I earn and I do put money away and I do diversify my investments and I do rely on professionals to help me with those investments. So I, I invest via fund managers. I don't invest personally. I don't directly um, invest into to stocks, etc. But I got a bit clever and a bit ahead of myself. And so I've been holding cash for the last sort of 18 months because I didn't feel like it was a great time to invest. And what I've realised is I've been trying to time the market. And I know that this is a you know, this is not the way to do it. But here I am doing, making mistakes and doing all the wrong things. And there's a great, um, I think it's a Chinese um, proverb, which is something along the lines of, when is the best time to plant a tree? It was 20 years ago. When's the second best time to plant a tree? It's now. 